0: You want the end user to understand why his access is blocked. You want to do it in computer time, machine time, not in human time. You want to protect the data when you need to, but the user needs to understand why he's blocked, and you want to help the help desk, and you also want to make sure that, you know, every SOC analyst doesn't have to look at every single event. Hello,
1: and welcome to Explain It, brought to you by SoftCat, the show for IT professionals by IT professionals that aims to simplify the complex and often overcomplicated bits of enterprise IT without compromising on the detail. I'm your host, Zach Abbott, and over the next few episodes, we'll be doing something a bit different. Remote working and the digital workplace has dominated so many of our lives, and it's still something that many of you and your organisations are dealing with the consequences of. So we'll be taking a closer look at some of these core components of remote working in the coming episodes. These deep dive episodes will include topics such as the transition of company culture to remote working and the next step in remote working. In today's episode, we'll be talking about how to secure the remote workforce. Over the next 30-ish minutes, I'll be talking to our guests about what the biggest security challenges of migrating to remote working have created, how these challenges can be addressed, and look at where this might lead us all in the future. Joining me today on the episode is Adam Luca, Chief Technologist for Cybersecurity, and Nico Fishbach, Global CTO and Vice President of Sassy Engineering for Forcepoint. Is it SAS or Sassy? It's really sassy, right? Sassy like Adam. It's so Adam, sassy. Adam is sassy. <laughs> uh, welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for joining me. Uh, Nico, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Could you just explain to us a little bit about your role at
0: Forcepoint and maybe how you got to where you are today? I joined uh, Forcepoint Little four years ago. I'm the, uh, the global CTO and the VP of Sassy Engineering. There's a couple of other things I'm doing. So I also run company-wide innovation. And I also run what we call X Labs. X Labs is what we call what is you know our security research lab, where we do all the yeah, the cool research. Before that, I spent what is it 16, 17 years at Colt, in a city of London Telecom, moved up the ranks, you know. Um, and at some point, Matt Moynihan, the the previous CEO of Forcepoint, reached out and he convinced me to to join the dark side, A.K. for vendor. I can tell you the the ride has been you know fantastic ride so far.
1: Now, Nico, before we start the show, I always like to ask our guests uh, more of an off-topic question to get to know them a little better. So with that in mind, Adam, you think of one too. What is your most useless
0: talent? So I don't, I don't know if it's if, if it's a useless one, but it's one I've never abused, but it's a funny one. And, you know, you know, people on the podcast, you know, that's what I was asking you earlier. It's audio only, right? So they'll have to Google me and see if it's actually true or not. But, you know, a lot of people, you know, sometimes approach me like, "You are you Bruce Willis? <laughs> a few years ago on a german highway i was driving and then the car next to that that just passed you know pulls up you know on my you know my level again and the guy puts up a, a sign like are you bruce willis you know i driving well that was the first time years ago and then uh, what was it four or five years ago in hong kong you know, i was there with the team local team we go out for drinks one of the evenings to celebrate a win and we take pictures and people start to queue <laughs> that's amazing and then we were dancing down people like hey do you mind like do you want to take a picture with you it's like i was like i'm not who you think i am <laughs> or oh, whatever you know and they're like but you you're bruce williams right I like no i'm not right so there's been this running joke about you know and you know me responding and my wife is not demi moore right, which sometimes, you know, pieces off my wife. <laughs> but so let's call that the most useless skill, And, you know, this will have, you know, people have to Google me and see if that's true or not. For the benefit of the listeners, we're talking very
1: much Die Hard 4 and not Die Hard 1. Um, just just so you can get an idea, which um, is great because actually also quite Die Hard 4-ish. Adam Luca, let's hear your most useless uh, talent and I'll compare. I'm upset because
2: I feel like, as a second class Bruce Willis, I'm, I'm not going to play that. <laughs> <laughs> my most useless talent is the ability to rap almost all of Kanye West, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, in its entirety. It's not something that's particularly useful. Um, however, that album is deeply ingrained in my brain. And if you get probably more than four pints into me, I probably will spew it out at some point to somebody. Fair, but without the
1: pints couple lyrics now?
2: I'm definitely not doing it now. I'm gonna I'm gonna save my uh, the small amount of pride
1: that I've got left uh for, for this recording. <laughs> Boo, boo. Based on that alone, I've got to hand it to Nico for being a fake Bruce Willis. That's that's the win right there. And that's enough of that, let's be honest. Right, let's get on with the show. Uh, maybe starting with you, Adam, can you just explain how the challenges of securing end users and managing their behaviors have evolved in the move to widespread remote working? So I guess there's, for me, two sides to that. There's the physical migration of those users
2: from on-premises networks on being connected and inside this kind of safe and secure bubble of our of our corporate networks that we've spent time investing and preening and, and making good and secure places to these users that are now distributed across across the globe across the the world in their home offices in you know sitting on sofas uh, sitting in tiny rooms not designed to be used for for long term work and. You know with that migration has come a couple of changes isn't it you know f- fundamentally when i speak to a lot of customers there is an acceptance or is there uh, that the security controls that are deployed on-premise potentially don't marry and don't always match up with the security controls that are there when we work remotely so there's that one kind of side so they very much that technical you know how good is my security controls am i offering uh, am i protecting my users adequately when they're working remotely I think the second part of that is is more behavioral. So how does the way people act change when they're no longer in a work environment so actually when they are at home when they're in their own personal environment how does that change the way people act the way they think and also subsequently how does that potentially make them more open to social engineering and other types of attacks that potentially they they may have be been more aware of should they be in a more structured and formal environment and, and I think both of those things are really important for businesses to understand and to start to address as they People talk about adapting to the new normal, but if I'm perfectly honest, I think it's as they start to see the value also in being able to operate as a hybrid workforce rather than potentially being very much focused on on premises environments. I know, Nico, you've, um, you know, you've, ForcePoint as an organization and and yourself has done a lot of work into user behaviors uh, as an area. Have you seen any? evidence anything that would would back up that kind of shift in people's attitudes when they
0: work at home yeah i I think you know you you see that in exactly what you're saying right is i mean it's all about you know first of all the follow me policies right you know the security posture you know the 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 policies you put in place when it was you know walk you know in the office i mean you already had people travel you had you know the remote workforce the road warriors right but the follow me policy you know is something that you know comes up all the time and then user experience which drives user behavior to your point right you know how do you make security usable with those with the the remote remote workforce and make sure that they actually then still think they're working in the office and still create that you know kind of bridge you know that or that that kind of you know war that needs to exist between the private the way you operate you know sometimes on your private devices and the way you, you operate on your on your company device because even there there's some blending that happened in some organizations i mean you know, maybe you know many listeners. They were lucky enough that the company, you know, over over the uh, the course of, of of a weekend or a few weeks, could handle laptops. Right, that were kind of company property, that were kind of secured, and we're running you know the uh, the usual kind of tools and policies. Right, but there's also you know many organizations where you know people at home are sharing devices. You know, and then people are like, oh, let's use the, the the family iPad, put you know Office on it, and this is shared by the kids. You know, doing sometimes a school schoolwork on it and whatever. So. It's like this blending has happened as well in terms of device usage. What we kind of called it is, you know, the uh, the, the, the remote office has become a branch office of the enterprise. So you, you have like no sometimes, you know, dozens, hundreds of thousands of branch offices with local networking, local Wi-Fi, a lot of, you know, IoT devices, you know, home IoT devices, shared usage, right? And how do you make sense of that? And how do you still continue to protect the, the key assets, you know, both the user you know, from compromise, but also the, the company data that this user is using either at home or remotely, because he's also making a lot of local copies. I mean, we might all be lucky because we probably all have enough bandwidth into home, is it five or something else? But you know, in many regions it means you have to download files locally, you work on it locally on your Excel sheet, you push it back up, right? Local copy, not tracked, where is it going next? So um, you know, to me, like I think you're right, Adam, it's a mix of policies, follow me stuff, but also like how user experience drives user behavior. From
1: someone who knows a lot less about the security environment and what it is right now, it it seems like it's very easy to just say, there's more remote connections going into your organization. So that's more of a security threat. Is that like the biggest way that the changes have evolved? Or is there other threats that maybe have snuck in, and people aren't so aware of because the biggest takeaway
0: would be there's more remote connections. So there's more uh, weak points? Yeah, I think exactly right. I mean, but that was really kind of the first weeks and the first months where it was all about VPN scaling, people re-architecting their remote access, forgetting that the security posture is changing because of that, not realizing that the data shifted from you know, a lot of on-prem or you know, very early days, cloud applications into SaaS applications, driven by other departments. So uh, I, I think that, that wake up call happened towards the end of the year. At least you know, if, if the numbers speak, you know, that's what we saw in terms of you know, uptick in data protection programs. And also the uptick in, you know, I want DLP, some people call a legacy piece of technology, which is still super important, like shifting to the cloud, right? This kind of whole follow me approach data protection where you want to have the same policy for data protection independently of the channel. You know, it's more than just, you know, let's secure the email channel, which is the uh, sealed channel where most of the crap comes in, right? Infrastructure security, like you said, Adam, trying to keep it out, where most of the data X fields happen, either by mistake or because, you know, people are compromised or because people are rogue, but then, you know, people have shifted channels, you know, from, you know, email to cloud, like think of Dropboxes to, you know, cloud native services. So what you really want to have is a holistic approach to data protection independently of the media or the mean of transport, right. And look at this post, you know, in transit at rest. And then the the weak point to your question, Adam, is still the, the home user, right? Because endpoint fatigue, because, you have to give sometimes the local user admin rights to be able to uh, print locally. You know, Is that being abused? I mean, I think a lot of people struggle with you know GPOs and other and evolutions of, of the local assets to actually enable the remoters to work and not just turn the workstation as a typical client server model where you don't do anything locally and everything happens in the cloud, right? You, you need sometimes to do things locally. I think that's the, the piece, isn't it? The As you say, there was that evolution, but there was also, I think
2: we've reached a point where there's a fundamental acceptance that this is the new operating model. And I guess when businesses are going to choose to make an investment, I think a lot of people were considering this pandemic. We've activated DR, essentially. Like we're we're operating with a reduced security footprint. We're accepted of that additional risk because fundamentally we need to keep the business on and the lights on and, and things working. So we will accept that. But as this pandemic has continued and the requirement for hybrid and remote working has continued. It it's become now a standard part or, or at least an increasing part of people's normal operating model. So they're starting to want to mature those those controls and, and those protections. And Zach, just to your point on on threats, I guess, my addition, I totally agree with, with with Nico's one that he put up there was is is probably um, thinking about actually how is the data being used. So Nico spoke about this idea of syncing a lot of files down and, and pulling that data. Well, actually, you know, how are people getting that visibility back that previously they didn't have? And also, how are they doing that at, without impacting performance? So a lot of, you know, a lot of these questions are quite simple to fix. So, hey, you want visibility, tunnel all the traffic across a VPN you get visibility It's not it's not a problem but but actually the hard bit is how do you get that benefit without having the downside or whatever which everyone is aware of is latency overhead especially on you know voice and video which is you know what everyone's doing 10 hours a day probably a minimum these days that for me is the big one is how do we give the users what they want but also keep the visibility level at least as good as we had it before if not actually let's try and make it
1: better let's try and evolve this a bit Cool. Okay, so we've talked quite a bit in depth there about what the challenges uh, companies have faced and and how they've evolved over the past 10 years, months, whatever it's been since this whole came about. So Adam, what are security teams doing to effectively manage those situations? I guess they're doing a number of different things. We are... Really starting to see
2: organisations evolve their approach to securing these users outside of the office, and that's generally related to building a ecosystem of technologies that protects the users regardless of their location. So, actually applies a uniform approach to security regardless of of where they're physically located, and and this typically has involved a shift to. Cloud-based security platforms, as we devolve those security layers away from being something that is physically located somewhere on your network to being something that is located actually where your users are, and or it's located where your cloud services that they're predominantly accessing are. I also think the the second side is we're we're really seeing a shift towards um, towards identity-based approaches for. Networking security concepts specifically, and uh, you know, there's a lot of talk in the industry around zero trust and something that's been around for a long time. It's, it's. Uh, I think it's a term that won't die, and, and I think for good reason. There is, there are some definite advantages to to taking a zero trust approach. I, I my, my, bugbear a little bit with zero trust is, is not that it's bad. It's not that it doesn't work. It's not that it isn't logical. You know, it's just this idea of zero trust. To me, it's just the least privilege, isn't it? It's about, it's about understanding what do people need to access and what is the least amount of access I need them to effectively do their job. I was just slightly challenged with this kind of zero trust and the way it's dressed up a little bit. For me, it's an adaptive security model that is based upon who are you, where are you going, should you be allowed to do that, really, at the simplest of terms. What do you think, Nico?
0: T- totally agree. I mean, you know, that's why you know, we, we, we call the concept internally risk-adaptive protection. Right, which is exactly that, because I have a problem with zero trust, you know, term as well, because it's very negative. You know, I think in some of the, uh, you know, the language I, we, we use is adaptive trust, like you just did, or connected trust, because you want to connect the user with the applications with the right privileges. And you want to do it in a way that's, that is uh, not a one off authentication, you know, depending on how, how the behavior from the end user changes and the risk he's posing at a certain point in time to company data or company systems, you evolve it, right? You know, if, if somebody uh, in sales, you know, is trying to access too much information outside of salesforce.com and whatever is in SharePoint and trying to get into HR data or finance, where well, you start to restrict him, right? Because, you know, is it still Adam, you know, or, or no, Zach, Zach, you in sales, right? So is Zach, you know, still Zach, you know, behind the keyboard or did somebody compromise him, right? Or is Zach a who is t- starting to stockpile data, like customer lists, trying to walk away, right? And uh, he will never do that, right? Never, ever, right? Yeah. <laughs> We'd hope he's, not. He's, he's his fingers <laughs> on the screen, right? So, uh, you know, zero trust to me is this concept of risk adaptive, you know, and least privilege if you want it, but also over time, right? Because those privileges need to change depending on the data, depending on the level of the marking on the documents, right? And that's why you see, you know, data protection programs, Having moved to a uh, you know way beyond just doing like basic policies around you know PII type data and so on is like you you bring in you know discovery classification labeling you want to use that you know you combine that combine that with the, the risk you get from the user behavior and that's how you evolve over time but I think what's important is again you know the user experience you want the end user to understand why his access is blocked right? You want to do it in computer time, machine time, not in human time, A.K. automate and those, you know, do SOC analysts. Again, it goes back to the user experience. You want to protect the data when you need to, but the user needs to understand why he's blocked and you want to help the help desk. And you also want to make sure that you know, every SOC analyst doesn't have to look at every single event, right? They want a lot of context. So I think that takes us to uh, how we make it happen as an industry by, you know, having machine learning, automation, you know, user behavior that goes you know beyond just single alerts and single events, and that's how you create that you know one user experience which is much more fluid, but still protect the company data, right? And that's really how I would call it, right? I, mean, I, know, I know, but that's kind of to me the concept of Zach.
1: I think certainly uh, from a from a user perspective, the the name zero trust at a time where sort of culture and staying connected with your users and having like togetherness is a really big feature. I don't think zero trust is a term that really helps install that. So I think risk adaptive or or such things that you've just mentioned definitely seems like the way forward. So uh, in terms of selling it as a concept to the users, etc. So that risk adaptive security, how would that play a role in the way that organizations would respond to
0: uh, threats today, Nico? So I think it's twofold, right? Because you would still be looking at the infrastructure security side of things, like security hygiene, you know, security hygiene one one you know, you still need to do that, but that needs to be hidden from the user. But it's becoming difficult. I mean, you, if we go back and look at all data from X Labs, you know, in the early weeks of of the pandemic, you know, all the COVID you know themed campaigns that were super targeted. You know, people faking Office 365, you know, credential losses. I mean, some of them were really impressive, right? And they are so targeted that you know they make it past, you know, a lot of the controls, right? And even sometimes security teams have to dissect the thing to the la- last bit and byte to understand what's going on. So, you know, that's why what Adam said earlier, like don't, don't blame the user. He's not the weakest link, you know, because you know sometimes it's hard for us to help him. So if he makes the mistake to click because it wasn't obvious to him, right? You know, how do you catch it? Like, you know. And that's where kind of, you know, user behavior comes in, like, hey, you know, you see this user connecting from, you know, somewhere in the UK at the same time is coming in from China, trying to, uh, you know, access, in Office 65 resources, it it shouldn't be touching. I mean, there's kind of easy ways to to catch this. And that's, you know, I think how we need to help the user, because there's honestly, um, what we've seen is some of those things are pretty easy to catch, right? And you want to integrate them with identity management tools, like again, to Adam's point is people, you know, have shifted, you know, to using, you know, a lot of uh, single sign on, you know, platforms and making identity, you know, the source of truth, right? And what you want, you want the, uh, the analytics engine to be able to drive through risk adaptive, you know, what you want to do. So say, hey, is, is it still Zach, you know, behind the keyboard trying to access those files from HR? You know, I'm going to trigger an MFA request. Pro- prove me that it's still you, right? You still have the credentials. Like this, this type of thing, like something more interactive. I'm not going to say it's, it's kind of gamification, you know, of identity and security and access management, but to some extent it is, right? And uh, that's kind of the kind of the end use of you. And the the other side, you know, of the of that pane of glass is like, how do you make you know socks effective by you know really doing the things in real time. And helping them educate the user like if something user gets blocked they can come in and call the users hey we've seen you do this to that you know was it really you like or maybe you need access to that you know data for real business purposes right so you know people in, in data protection programs using business coaching you know you as you know poor user can override but you have to provide justification which we will end up in the audit file so I think there's ways to go from this very binary approach of you know blocking a low, to something which is risk adaptive, but also you know empowering the end user to override the policy, but just having to provide the justification for it. I think that's uh, so important, isn't
2: it? And there, there is really two users, isn't there? You know, when we think about users, there is the users from the sense of those uh, end users that we're protecting, but also security analysts and the security teams are also the users of of these technologies. And what you said about providing context really stuck with me. I think. I've, for my sins, been involved in a a number of uh, data security and DLP projects uh, over my career, and you know I have to be honest. A few of them have been pretty hairy. A few of them have been really hard work, and you know we've gone with a, quite a, a manual static classification model. That's that's maybe not as well understood as people think it is you know when there's always a big difference on paper between here is the academic data classification and handling policy versus here's actually how it works in the real big bad world and before you know it organizations who have legitimately hundreds of thousands if not millions of alerts kicking off in those in those situations and and i think without the evolution into that more anomaly based and kind of gray area where we can help people kind of understand the context of, a of an alert and also more broadly, the, what happened before and after potentially a, a specific alert. It's very difficult then to really understand what is important, what really truly needs investigating versus what maybe is a false positive or, or maybe is just a limitation of the classification system rather than, rather than the system itself.
1: So you, you guys have talked quite a bit there about data and the importance of data and, and protecting it. Uh, but something you mentioned earlier was managing user behavior and and then also not blaming the user for, for being some of the increased threats and things like that. So is end user security
0: training, is that an effective way to manage that user behavior? End user security training, security awareness needs to continue, right? And again, I think what's interesting, you know, about all the things that about telemetry and having insights, you can make those trainings better and more spot on. Right. Like you can have specific examples, not just generic training that everybody has to take like two times a year, but specific examples like, hey, you know, this is a phishing we stopped. Look how clever it was. Like, that's how we stopped it. Like, that's where maybe you as a user helped us stop it. Right. Where your behavior helped us and helped made the company better. I think it's kind of this positive outcome of, of this approach. But the other thing which is still important, like it's not it's also the endpoint security itself. I think, you know, that was also part of your question where, you know, there's a lot of endpoint fatigue that comes up all the time. But what we're seeing there, you know, as much as we see convergence on the platform side, you know, with SASE, we also see convergence on the endpoint side where you see convergence of connectivity. So endpoint providing connectivity back into the organization, being in private access or cloud security, you know, endpoint providing security hygiene, endpoint providing analytics to drive user behavior, right? And you still need to do a lot on the endpoint because that's where you get the best data, where you have high-feed data where you don't have to push all the data to the cloud. So managing privacy is much better, but it's not, it's not everything, right? Some In some people's mind, like everything can and needs to be done at the endpoint. You know, the problem is when you have like users on multiple devices, you need cloud connectivity to reconcile. You need to manage reputation over time for those users. There's stuff you don't see on the endpoint where there's, you know, access to other applications that are sitting somewhere else. So what, what we're seeing there is, you know, endpoint security, I mean, fatigue is there, but I think with the convergence on the endpoint front, you know that's that's becoming better in my mind, and um, the ability to uh, to have best of both worlds, you know, combining data from on-prem, on device, you know, including device posture to some extent, what's happening in the cloud, and even you know sometimes ingesting third-party data. That kind of takes us back to the old school UE UEBA days. Right, but there's still value to, to into some of that, you know, depending on where you operate. So it's a, let, let's just look at the enterprise, but also you're also talking, you know, governments, federal agencies, you know, states, and other places where you know third-party data can also make sense that you want to ingest, you know, to help your your analytics outcome better. I think that uh, that ecosystem thing is
2: is really important. I think there's an increasing recognition that the only way we're going to create an environment that is feasible to operate for most customers is technology needs to integrate together and and that can't just be vendor's own technology that has to be more broadly across the sort of security ecosystem. And and one of the things that's made me really happy this year is just seeing the focus a lot of our vendor partners have had on ecosystems and kind of offering out-of-the-box and off-the-shelf integration between different products. That means that, you know, either they can share threat data or they can share uh, automate responses or contain threats a little bit more easy for customers. And I think that's really nice because especially in the more security-focused space, we are profiting off of, the customer's data because actually you know where does everyone get their iocs from you know everyone's threat feeds everyone's kind of clouds of data which protects all of their customers across the world Well, they come from our customers themselves and we you know for better or for worse monetize those things and i always think okay that's kind of a a bit of a quid pro quo, isn't it? You know, we'll, you know, you get access to everyone else's IOCs, we take yours and share those with everyone else. But on the flip side, when we don't allow customers to then reuse that within their own environment, I think is where we start to maybe do our customers a disservice and,
1: and not allow that data to, to be used more freely within their own environments. So with all that in mind then, what are we likely to see as remote working or hybrid working continues to be the main way organizations operate? So organizations are going to have the tools they need to
2: adequately or to trust their users more. And and I think I think a lot of the reasons why people use that maybe slightly negative language and zero trust is that they don't feel like they have the visibility, like they have the guardrails to trust users to allow them to, to do the best that they can do and to allow them to make decisions and have autonomy for themselves and i think as organizations maturity starts to grow what we actually start to see is actually organizations who invest in these technology areas they they don't end up more restrictive they end up less restrictive because actually they can say yes to more things security Fundamentally, if done right, and it is my honest view as I'm a very positive person, and I would hate the idea of cybersecurity being seen as this—like it, it isn't a blocker; it has to be an enabler. Like the whole point is to be able to say yes to more things, but to be able to say yes because you can do it properly and you can do it securely, as opposed to saying yes by de facto answer because you you aren't able to see it or you aren't able to control it. So. My personal belief is the future of of this is really creating a point whereby security controls are applied across the whole environment. We understand them. We can measure them. We can understand when things go wrong. We can have the guide rails. And really, we can give the power back to the individual to say, you know what, you are the best at doing your job. Like actually, within these parameters... Here is the agency to do that. Here is the agency to deliver the, and be the best, kind of have the best outcome for the business. I mean, Nika, what do you think?
0: No, I, I agree, right? And, you know, I think this, you know, it's not going to go away. I think we, we won't be going back. You know, the hybrid approach is, 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 is going to be here to stay. I think people enjoy the flexibility of remote working. I know it also comes with a cost, you know, quite often, right, to, to families and private life. But I think in general, you know, you see organizations kind of completely rethinking their approach to uh, to offices and uh, how they want to approach. The thing I would say though is, you know, what we've seen, I think internally at Forcepoint and also, you know, talking to uh, to to other, you know, CIOs and CEOs and organizations is there's still a challenge. It's it's maybe less security related, but it's how do you how do you engage the users? everything which was in flight, you know, when you know, the first lockdowns hit us, you know, and we are a global organization. So it was a different point in time, but go back you know, kind of Q1, Q2, you know, 2020, you know, everything which was in flight, you know, people, you know, managed to, uh, keep it running, you know, keep delivering and so on. The challenge is how do you start new things? Right. And, and to start new things is kind of difficult. And, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of wondering if that applies also to security. You know, if you want to do security differently, how, if you want to engage the users differently, you know, can you do that, you know, over Zoom or over screen? And that's the you know, challenging piece I've seen. I've, you know, I've seen that you need to repeat things more, that you need more meetings to make sure it kind of it stays engraved, that decisions, you know, get really understood, right? Is it kind of, you know, is, is multitasking making a, a, its comeback, Right, which is you know for many years not good, and you know if you multitask too much, you know your security is going to become weaker. There's a lot of kind of you know things that there's a lot of you know questions to me, you know that you know I mean we might be going into a terrain that is not you know where not any of us an idea, which is more kind of the psychology, right? And how do you? That's why I think some of the things we're doing in X Labs, you know, with human behavior research is like how do you apply human psychology to computer security, right? And it's quite funny because some stuff that you know some of the research I've been working on was much more really about user experience, you know, which we talked about a lot here and not really like, oh, what's the best way to do, you know, uh, machine learning and train that model and whatever it is like, hey, how do, we, how do we interact with the user to make sure they adopt the new thing, which at the beginning it was like, you know, hey guys, you're security researchers and psychologists, why are you doing this? And then it was like, okay, you know, this whole user experience and how do you kind of get the buy-in, how do you engage, how to make them part of it, it's actually much more important then, you know, having the latest, you know, indicator of behavior that's going to detect, you know, some, something that you shouldn't be doing. So, uh, Nico, what's your take on culture versus control? Do you think organizations should be giving more agency to users? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, the, the days of command and control are over. You know, I think that's, you know, kind of old school management. You know, I think, you know, trusting users is much more important, but you need to coach them, you need to help them, you need to, to educate them. It, it needs to happen when something triggers. Right. So like this business coaching, you know, for example, when, you know, there's an event about, you know, data protection know, explain that, you know, the data is of certain value that, you know, if, you know, it needs to be sent, you know, think about it. It's kind of this kind of you know stop and think, you know, and then, you know, provide like for audit purposes, you know, reason to do it. So you don't block the users from getting his work done. Right. So you should really kind of empower and trust users because at the end of the day, if you look at data. You know you don't have a lot of rogue users in organizations right you, you you know everybody quite in general wants to do the right thing you know understand the spatial kind of you know state or mindset now they are lever are not lever they have resigned they are pissed off they're compromised they are an asset they're here for espionage right but you know that's usually a small subset you know depending on data you know some people say it's less than a percent some people say it's eight or nine percent of an organization which if you have a large organization, you know, it's, it's quite a large number. So I get you to think like, you know, can you really have that many, right? But, you know, quite often, you know, people are making mistakes. They're being compromised. Let's let's coach, but let's coach in real time, you know, so that they actually, you know, understand, you know, you know in, kind of in the act, if that's proper English, you know, what, what can be done or not
1: done. And for organizations that are struggling to move to more freedom, How can you or how can they bring the idea uh, to the board or
0: C-level and and get their buy-in? I think it's usually kind of at the board level, it's, you know, it's about numbers, right? I think they they like to explain the the business benefits, you know, of that change, you know, what's going to drive in terms of getting better business outcomes, you know, being faster to respond to RFPs, being able to support customers in a better way. You know, I think there's like, I think they need to explain it if they can with metrics, but really with the business outcomes. We want to do this and give the users like either trust or whatever, because it's going to drive this. And that's going to be a business benefit. That's how the, uh, our customers are going to like us more. You know, you're going to increase your NPS score because you, you the support team can react in a better way, you know, and, and, and first time time to fix, you know, is on, on first touch. I mean, it's all those things. I think it's about the business outcomes, right? And same thing, I mean, like I said, you know, in the intro, like SASE, people looked at it as, as a reference architecture, some, something super technical. I think you know, it is more like something you should also address at business level and indicate your board about you know, how this is going to help you know, with business outcomes. Something we've mentioned already, but SASE, uh,
1: can we get like a quick definition of what, what does it actually mean? So
2: I'll take the literal definition as in what the letters mean and then me, maybe Nico can give his, his view of the, of the framework itself. But SASE stands for Secure Access Service Edge and is a term created by Gartner for a framework of technologies that enable customers to protect uh, users when they're accessing various different services. So that's that's my take on it. Nico, what what would you say? And I guess what, what, what is in the SASE framework
0: typically? Yeah, I think you're right. And it's kind of, you know, SASE is, you're doing security for, for the cloud, out of the cloud to enable the use case, one of the use cases you mentioned, which is like you know, the remote workforce. I think, in terms of technology stack, what it means is you 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 move from a world where everything was rack and stack on-prem, you know, point solution equipment, you know, shifting to the cloud, and being consumed as platforms in the end, right? So moving away from point products on-prem, moving to uh, you know SaaS-based consumption-based you know security services, cloud security services, but also data protection, right? Because again. For many users, you know, SASE was just like cloud network security shifting to the cloud. That's the uh, one layer. But there's also data protection, the identity concept, you know, being in risk adaptive, you know, across that stack. That's that's really where we're going. And um, I think it's more than a technology framework as well. You know, it's an architecture, but it's also, I think it could become some sort of a business reference model on how you do things like, like you know, we uh, we mentioned already. And, you know, we continue to discuss here in this podcast perfect that is about it
1: for this uh this week's episode guys thank you so much it's been really great hearing your thoughts today before we wrap up properly adam can you just give us a quick maybe like the key takeaways from today's episode
2: yeah for sure so really when we we first started talking about how the shift towards remote and hybrid working has changed the way organizations deliver networking, security, and and protection of those users. We spoke a little bit about some of the the threats and additional considerations that organizations need to make when going through that shift. We then took a hard left into uh, looking at the psychology and the way users uh, interact with their systems and and how some of the behaviors that they make are driven by the methods and the, the things that we make Users do and the processes that we put them through. And then before coming back around to this idea of actually how does business culture change due to remote working? And also, what are the benefits of giving users freedom and the rights
0: to do what they want versus having that control? You know, it's quite funny, right? We're all technologists. We didn't talk tech, right? We spoke about everything else and how we use tech to enable this for, you know, users and the enterprise, which I think is, you know, fascinating. Perfect.
1: Thanks very much, guys. Um, That is it for this uh, first episode in the Remote Working Deep Dive mini series. Nico, Adam, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Zach. Nice to have us. And thank you guys for listening to today's episode. Keep an eye out for the next episode in the series coming out very soon. If you want to know more about anything that was covered in this episode or want to get in contact with us, feel free to email us at podcast at softcat.com. Make sure you click subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we'd also really appreciate you giving us a review or leaving a comment on whatever podcast platform you use. We'd really love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to Explain It from Softcap.